0: Africa Digest.
1: Every Good evening, welcome to Africa Digest. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are in frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-metre band to southern Africa. I am Spumelele Zondi, and with me in Sudes and Musa, Wisanima Tabula and Figelelingwadi. It's 1700 hours, let's take a look at the top stories. Protesters in Burundi's capital have burnt men alive in ongoing riots. Mali is tense as the United Nations awaits the signing of a peace agreement. And the International Monetary Fund says Sub-Saharan Africa is set for another year of solid performance despite declining commodities. And in sports, the Confederation of African Football and Carthage Football Association sign a five-year cooperation agreement. Yes, and Musashi has your news.
0: A very good afternoon to you. The African Union has called on the government of Burundi to postpone its forthcoming elections due to the violence that engulfed the country. Dozens have been reported killed and over 40,000 people are believed to have fled to neighbouring countries as protests intensify against a bid for a third term by President P. Nkurunziza. Nkurunziza wants a third term in office and has called on the country's election body to prepare for the election. The chairperson of the African Union Dr. Nkosizana Tamini Zuma says the situation in Burundi is not conducive for an election. Meanwhile, Burundi protesters have reportedly burned a man to death after putting a tire around his neck. Local media and a witness say a group of protesters attacked and killed a member of the ruling party's youth wing in the capital, Bujumbura. They say the youth wing has been inciting violence during a week of violent protests against the president's bid for a third term. A group of Ethiopians reported to have been kidnapped in Libya has arrived at Cairo Airport after Egyptian authorities managed to get them released. Egyptian state television aired live footage from the airport where Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi greeted about 30 Ethiopians who had arrived. Sisi has reportedly called for international efforts to combat Islamist militants in Libya. Last month, a video purportedly made by the Islamic State and posted on social media sites appeared to show militants shooting and beheading about 30 Ethiopian Christians in Libya. It's all systems go for the official opening of Parliament of Lesotho by King Letsie III tomorrow. The opening follows the SADC-facilitated election held in February. It was brought forward by two years as part of a deal to resolve the kingdom's political crisis last year. Both the National Assembly and Upper House, the Senate, have officially been summoned by the King. Ndakwa reports.
2: The parliament buildings are a hive of activity as final touches are made. Strict media accreditation is now underway. The Lesotho-mounted police service that leads the king's motorcade to parliament could be seen doing their drills during the week. The apex of the opening will be a speech from the throne delivered by King Litsia III to set the programme for the seven-party coalition government for the next five years.
0: Millions of people in the UK are heading to the polls in today's crucial general election. The main party leaders have cast their votes. The polls are open until 10pm UK time. Our correspondent Dan Whitehead reports.
3: Across the UK, polling stations are open. There are 3,971 candidates hoping to win one of the 650 seats in the House of Commons. 50 million people are registered to vote in the UK. Several million of those are thought to have voted over the past few weeks by post, but the majority will turn up in person to the ballot box. Turnout could be around 70%. Once polls close at 10pm UK time, exit polls will be published before results come in from as early as 11pm right through the night. There should be a clear indication whether or not there is an outright winner or a hung parliament in the early hours of Friday morning.
0: Election officials in Britain have meanwhile warned voters not to share pictures taken of themselves in, in polling booths as they cast ballots warning that a selfie could land them in jail. The Electoral Commission says that while it's not illegal to take a selfie showing an image that shows accidentally or not how someone voted would infringe on rules on voting secrecy and could lead to a six-month prison sentence. That's the news headlines at 5.30 Central African time.
1: In the 1705 Central African time, protesters in Burundi's capital Bujumbura have reportedly burnt a man alive earlier today, saying he was a member of the ruling party's youth wing that had attacked them during demonstrations against the president's third-term bid. The protesters have been on Bujumbura streets for almost two weeks now, often hurling stones at police who they say have fired live rounds—an allegation police have denied. Balen Haviririman has the latest.
4: The East African Community's Foreign Affairs Minister delegation met different political parties and Burundian civil society. Talks were focused on how the East African Community countries could help Burundian to overcome to the political situation prevailing in this country. Gwengezo, a political leader, says the delegation from Kenya, Rwanda, Tanzania, and Uganda came in Burundi as neighbours to listen to both sides in order to see how they can solve Burundian political crisis. We met in order to discuss about the prevailing situation and made an overview of all problems which were here in Burundi related to the third term of President Kourouziza security situation and to see what can be done in order to find solution to this, to this crisis. In brief, it was an external meeting between political partners and the delegation.
5: After
4: the meeting meeting, one of opposition leader, Mr. Odifax Dabitoree, has been arrested by police together with officials of intelligence in front of the delegation. The situation was like this. But later in the night, Mr. Odifax has been released. Meanwhile, demonstrations still going on in different neighborhoods of Bojumbura town and Kinama, two persons have reportedly been killed by grenade throwing by youth of ruling party known as Imbonerakure, those young who killed those demonstrators have been taken to soldier for more investigations a person reportedly to be a member of Imbonerakure youth of ruling party CNDD FDD has been burned in Nyakabiga neighborhoods person of Imbonerakure who are young affiliated to the ruling party CNDD FDD says each one will respond to what he has done and appeal to those young people to stay calm and respect those who are in demonstrations. Reporting for China Africa, I'm Balin in Bujumbura.
1: Meanwhile, as protests continue in Burundi against the president 's attempt to seek a third term, the United Nations is looking at ways to solve the political crisis in the country. A reported of forty thousand people have fled to the country to have fled the country to neighboring Rwanda, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Tanzania due to civil unrest. Vladimir Montero, a spokesperson for the United Nations Electoral Observation Mission in Burundi, Manub, says the organization is committed to support peaceful, credible, and inclusive
6: elections. According to reports, some protesters took to the streets in some areas of Bujumbura, Burundian capital, protesting the decision of the courts with respect to the third mandate of President Pierre Nkurunziza. Yesterday, the decision of the Constitutional Court, but at the same time, a meeting was taking place, a meeting convened by the government with the support of the UN Electoral Observation Mission in Burundi, and people have their minds focused on this important issue, but also trying to find solutions under the auspices of the UN.
0: What is the UN's position before Pierre and Kurunziza's decision to
7: run for a third mandate and the Constitutional Court supporting it, and what action is the UN taking?
6: Well, the reaction of Secretary General was stated in his recent statement by the spokesman, uh, saying and appealing Burundians to keep all the gains they made in these consolidations and also to resolve their differences through a dialogue process. On the second question uh, regarding the UN, what the UN is doing, the UN is committed to support peaceful, credible and um, inclusive elections, and in line of, of this commitment, the UN co-organized this meeting yesterday, which brought together the government, the ruling party, party close to the government, the opposition, the health society organizations and religious organizations to try to find a solution with respect to, to the electoral process and all issues related to the election.
0: The East African Community sent a delegation to Bujumburat Is the UN involved in these talks as well?
6: Yeah, the, the, As part of the UN philosophy of working with uh, regional organizations like the African Union, the East African Community, or ICGLR, yes, the UN, through Special Envoy for the Great Lakes and the Deputy Chief of menu were at that meeting. All partners are really involved in trying to find a solution to what's uh, happening in Burundi because it's an electoral process but it's already started having social impact you are aware of the figures of the HCR regarding 40,000 Burundian fled the country to Rwanda, to Yasi, to Tanzania. This is why the UN is also involved in other initiatives, at least to support, to back them, if they can bring peace and create a peaceful uh, environment.
0: Is there any headway being made?
6: Well, consultations are going on. I cannot tell you Exactly uh, the outcomes, Mr. Secretary, the Special Envoy will announce uh, publicly the outcomes. But we hope that, in line with uh, the SD's appeal, Burundian people and the authorities and the political actors preserve the winds for uh, peace and democracy.
7: What are the next steps?
6: Well, at least let us wait for uh, the outcomes of, of of this meeting. I cannot tell you, but um, the UN. Uh, is still uh, here in, in, uh, in, in Burundi to support, right? Uh, in addition to this work, the electoral mission is also monitoring the electoral process. And uh, according to the electoral calendar, the electoral campaign could start on the 10th of May, meaning next Sunday. So um, we are here also to observe all issues related to the election.
1: Vladimir Montero, spokesperson for the UN Electoral Observation Mission in Burundi, speaking to Cristina Silveiro. The situation in Mali is tense while the United Nations awaits the signing of a peace agreement, according to the force commander of the UN mission in the country, MINUSMA, Major General Michael Lollesgaard was appointed in March to serve in the West African country, where a coup d'etat in early 2012 continues to breed instability and violence. Force Commander Lola Lesgard begins by describing his role within the UN peacekeeping mission.
8: The primary role of the force commander is, of course, to command the force, which means that uh, I am responsible for putting the troops in place where they are, I'm also responsible for giving them the task. What are they doing and how are they doing the things and how are they reacting to the different challenges that we are having. Training is also very important. Some of the troops are here for a long period and they need to train all the while they are down here.
3: Tensions have been rising across the country for the past uh, few weeks and especially this past week. Can you give us a situation update?
8: Yeah, I think uh, this uh, very tense situation that we are currently in started where there were groups from uh, the platform that uh, actually took uh, Menaka and uh, forced the uh, groups from uh, the coordination out of Menaka. And uh, on that background, there was a number of uh, retaliations or counterattacks by the coordination in the different towns, causing a lot of tension among the local population in the area. Currently, it seems like there's uh, quiet in the area, but I'm speaking of this this hour. You never know uh, what is uh, actually uh, happening uh, around in the country. There was a meeting uh, this uh, weekend in uh, Gao with uh, the different uh, elements representing the peace process. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I'm uh, the chairman of a group called uh, CTMS. It's a group or committee that oversees the ceasefire agreement. Uh, we met uh, based on the uh, incidents and all the actions that had taken place the previous week. The groups, uh, Le Coordination and the Platform, agreed that they had violated uh, the ceasefire. At the meeting, we urged them to stop the hostilities. And we also urged them to uh, call a political meeting, which will be done by the SRSG uh, this week. A political meeting to settle... This violation of the ceasefire agreement and finding a solution on the different situations we have had. We hope that uh, we during uh, this week can uh, find an agreement that uh, settles uh, these actions that have been, the attacks on each other that has been, so we can continue with the peace process, hopefully with the signing on the 15th of May.
1: There is force commander of the UN mission in Mali, Major General Michael Lollesgard, talking to Helen Pepa. Kenya's Deputy President William Ruto recently told worshippers in a church service in Nairobi that homosexuality had no place in the East African nation. Homophobia is on the rise across much of Africa and homosexuality remains illegal in many countries, including Kenya. According to rights group Amnesty International, homosexuality is illegal in 36 out of 54 African countries and punishable by death in four. Ruto, who took office in 2013, is being tried on charges of crimes against humanity as the International Criminal Court for his alleged role in stoking ethnic violence after Kenya's 2007 presidential election. More from Mutoni Wanyeki, Regional Director for Amnesty International in East Africa and the Great Lakes region.
9: Well, I think he's pandering to the more extreme views of the more conservative part of the religious movement here.
2: What implications do you think such comments could have, um, given the fact that they are being uttered by someone of that position, of that authority?
9: Well, of course, it's alarming to realize that someone who sits in the office of the vice presidency, who is sworn to uphold our constitution, doesn't seem to understand the implications of the constitution when it comes to equality and when it comes to respecting recent court rulings upholding our constitution as concerns freedom of association. Do you think that Kenya,
2: like most African countries who are anti-homosexuality, could possibly change their view uh, given that there are potential sanctions um, from the likes of the U.S. who usually provide aid to such nations?
9: Well, I think, first of all, we need to be clear that homosexuality itself is not illegal. What is criminalized under the very old penal code that you're right we inherited from the British is sodomy acts against order of nature. You cannot, obviously, make illegal what someone's gender identity is and you cannot make illegal what someone's sexual orientation is. Those are just facts of life. And I think, as concerns the second part of your question, what is it that will make politicians of the ilk of RUTO or churches kind of and the general public change generally homophobic attitudes? I mean, that work has to come from within. Um, I think the African organized LGBTI communities have been very clear that in some ways external intervention is helpful, but in other ways it actually puts them more at risk. And I think there's a lot of work to be done to make African, uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered, intersex people just more visible so people accept, oh, you know, the LGBI community is part of our community. Oh, African LGBI people actually exist, you know, and they exist in multiple forms and multiple identities. I think the work is actually internal, but fortunately many of us, like South Africa, like Kenya, now have constitutions that uphold basic kind of rights to equality, basic rights to life, security of the person, the right to be free from anti-discrimination, the right to organize, and... I think it's the duty of all the human rights community to support the use of legal means to protect the LGBTI community as they come out, as they organize, as they begin to do the work of sort of influencing homophobic attitudes. Although with the
2: constitutions and policies, they're usually not translated to the people on the grassroots levels who are many at times the one that, uh, uh, you know, would commit crimes that are homophobic. So there would be your your, uh, corrective rapes and the like. How do we get to change those mindsets?
9: You know, I think most people would, if asked, you know, do you think someone should be beaten up because of who they are? If you were to use a different identifier like race, do you think someone should be beaten up because, you know, they're black, they're Asian, they're white? Most people would say, of course not. Do you think people should have a right to go to school and stay in school regardless of, most people would say, yes, of course people need to go to school. And I think that's what we have to appeal to is people's basic kind of understanding that what people want is just some dignity, some privacy, some security. Um and some means of just getting on with life just like everyone else.
1: That is Mutuni Wanyeki, original director for Amnesty International East, Great Lakes in Horn of Africa. She was talking to Kumotumapunan.
10: Channel Africa Blantyre. This is
11: Lansana Fofana
10: reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchema. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinsaka. In Yawundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa.
2: In, ngatani, in Lesotho.
10: Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwai in Nairobi.
2: Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa,
10: the voice of the African Renaissance.
1: It's 1722 Central African Time. You're listening to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The United Nations Joint Office for Human Rights says that there's still a huge challenge of human rights protection and promotion in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The statement came out as the DRC government held a conference on the situation of justice and human rights in the country. jean noel Bamwenze reports from Kinshasa.
12: The conference that has ended here in Kinshasa aimed to bring some low reforms as far as the situation of justice and human rights are concerned here in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Hundreds of delegates from all over the country and those from abroad came out with some recommendations that might help the DRC improve its justice and human rights for the benefit of this country's people. And for such recommendations to be effectively implemented, the United Nations Joint Office for Human Rights has called on the DRC government to collaborate with this UN office since there is still a huge challenge of human rights protection and promotion here. That's indeed what What a UN Joint Office for Human Rights Delegate said, Jennifer McCain,
2: there are challenges
0: which are facing the country when it comes to the protection and promotion of human rights. So there are great concerns that have to uh, do with the ongoing military um, presence of armed groups actively engaged, shelling civilians, which is an unaccept- unacceptable under international humanitarian law. There is violence, sexual gender-based killings, disappearances, these are serious problems.
12: Serious problems indeed, but the Democratic Republic of Congo has put in place its own National Human Rights Commission in order to protect and promote human rights here. And according to a delegate from Human Rights High Commission, there is a very important process going on, and every four years, the Congolese government, like all other governments, submits its report at the Human Rights Council. Ernest role
7: The request of the United Nations Human Rights Council in Geneva who in March 2012 asked the High Commissioner to do a report on the general human rights situation and on what her office is doing. There's a very important process going on now called the Universal Periodic Review. And this is every four years, the Congolese government, like all governments, must sit in front of the Human Rights Council in Geneva and respond to a series of recommendations that the Human Rights Council has made. This is uh, in the past. Uh, In 2009, the DRC submitted its very first report to the Human Rights Council.
12: This has been done while several observers believe the Democratic Republic of Congo has so many problems as far as the human rights situation is concerned. Some of the pro-democracy activists who were arrested here last March and some of their colleagues arrested in Goma in the east of the country are still detained and their lawyers have said the clients are going through a mistreatment. Jean-Noel Bamwesi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa.
1: The International Monetary Fund says Sub-Saharan Africa is set for another year of solid performance, despite declining commodities, with a projected growth rate of 4.5% for 2015. It says while Sub-Saharan Africa remains amongst the fastest-growing regions in the world, the decline in oil and other commodity prices has kept this growth project at the lower end of the range experienced in recent years. More from Celine Allard, head of the study Division at the IMF Africa Department?
3: On the one hand, oil importers uh, in the region will continue to face very favorable conditions and they'll continue to grow uh, briskly. But on the other hand, uh, the eight oil exporters in the region have been hit very hard. And because they have limited buffers, they will have to undertake fiscal adjustment. And that fiscal adjustment will weigh on their growth outlook, so for them, we have actually revised down growth by about two and a half percent for this year compared to what we were projecting in October.
7: Mm. So it's a it's a mixed bag. Um, what about the uh, the strong U.S. dollar? Uh, is that having a, an effect on, uh, especially for those countries who have a high level of external debt? Is that a concern now?
3: So um, you're absolutely right that the dollar has been appreciating quite substantially across many of the currencies in the region. It has appreciated against the euro, and a lot of countries are actually pegged to the euro, so they've seen their currency uh, depreciate against the dollar. Uh, But we've also seen other currency depreciate. Now, uh, on the positive side, it kind of mitigates the impact in domestic currency of the fall of the commodity prices. That uh, expressing local currency, uh, for example, the price of oil has not declined as much as in dollars. That helps also mitigate the impact on the public finances uh, of those countries. Now, on the less positive side, uh, stronger dollars means also that imports are going to be more expensive. And in particular, infrastructure investment has usually a very large import content which means that higher price of import will probably mean slower investment effort, infrastructure investment for the region, and that's going to weigh on, on growth. Now, you also pointed um, the impact of a stronger dollar on uh, debt service, and this is indeed not a very good development for countries that have a high share of their debt uh, in foreign denominated. Uh, so some frontier markets are actually... Going to have a higher debt service, and we're also monitoring the impact it might have on banks' balance sheet as well.
7: The report also looks at Africa's growing population, and more importantly, the um, tremendous workforce expansion that's going to happen in the coming years. Is that going to benefit the continent, or, or is uh, having to provide, you know, what's estimated as, as being like 18 million jobs per year for the next 20 or 25 years, is that a potential? problem for the continent?
3: So you're right that uh, the region is on the cusp of a very significant demographic transition uh, as um, fertility rate decline, but also mortality rate declines. So we expect that in the next 20 years or so, the number of new entrants in the labor force, young men and women uh, getting ready to work in sub-Saharan Africa, will be larger than that number for the rest of the world combined. So this is indeed something very, very large uh, for the region. It can bring a lot of opportunities. And uh, in in our report, we look in more detail in experiences in other regions that have experienced that kind of transition, Latin America and East Asia in the 60s, 70s. And what we see is that with the right policy, there can indeed be a very large demographic dividends, uh, meaning that that can help lift growth and living standards for the people in the region. That said, it is not going to be automatic. So with the right policy, it can mean a dividend, but you're right to point that if economic growth is not going to be there it can also be a, a a big concern for all these people who would be unemployed in the region
7: and what about uh, what is the role of uh, trade uh, the report also talks of increasing trade in the region and and uh, exports as well as uh, the, these uh, global value chains how could uh, the continent uh, take advantage of that that opportunity uh, what would it take
3: We indeed look uh, in great detail in trade integration of the region in the global economy. And we find that the region has indeed grown a lot. I mean, its ties with the global economy have grown tremendously over the last 20 years. It's partly a story about commodity, but it's not all about commodities. And we've seen countries manage to increase their export, even when they don't have a lot of commodity that they export. Uh, And however... Uh, when we look in more detail at trade flows in the region compared to elsewhere in the region, we do find that they tend to trade much less than elsewhere. So we see, there too, a very large potential to expand trade with the rest of the world, trade within the region, and we do see a role for global value chain. So now, what are those global value chains? There are these supply chains that have developed across the world where, The production process is slide in small pieces and every country adds a little bit of value added before exporting to other countries. Now, elsewhere in the world, um, in Europe, around Germany, or in Asia, around China and Japan, we've seen a lot of countries develop those value chains and benefit a lot in terms of growth and in terms of uh, living standards. So we think that Africa could also jump into the global value chain wagon and benefit a lot from that. Now, you're asking what it would take to do that. So we look in more details at the policy levers that could help that. And indeed, we do find that infrastructure is the main impediment to uh, to trade development because it takes much more in terms of cost to ship goods and services away from the country to uh, other other places. We also find, uh, unsurprisingly, that uh, business climate can be, if it's not conducive to, to business, can be an impediment. Rule of law, access to credit, and of course tariffs as well. I mean, tariffs remain relatively high in the region, and by lowering them, you could get some potential for additional trade.
1: That's Celine Allard, head of regional study division at the International Monetary Fund, African department. She was speaking to Bruce Edwards of the IMF. Here's Elmosa with the news headlines.
0: A very good afternoon to you. The African Union has called on the government of Burundi to postpone its forthcoming elections due to the violence that has engulfed the country. A group of Ethiopians reported to have been kidnapped in Libya has arrived at Cairo Airport after Egyptian authorities managed to get them released. And millions of people in the UK are heading to the polls in today's crucial general election. Those are the stories making headlines.
1: At least 15,000 children in South Africa suffer from burns-related injuries every year, with an average of nine children dying each day from these injuries. These shocking statistics make burns the leading cause of injury and death to young children in the country. South Africa is this week marking the National Burns Awareness Week, an annual campaign designed to provide an opportunity for burn, fire and life safety educators to unite in sharing a common burns awareness and prevention message with the public. To talk more about this, here's Colin Lee, who is the co-founder of the National Burn Association of South Africa.
5: It's so very important that we create awareness around the issue of burns in South Africa. As you know, you know, there's extensive injuries in this country, a lot of fires, particularly in informal settlements and one-room dwellings, and, you know, it's a very, very expensive and debilitating injury for people to get. So I think it's very important that we get public awareness out there and education that we can teach people to avoid these kinds of issues and, you know, to save not only themselves and their families, huge amounts of trauma, but also to save a lot of money for the country.
2: Mr. Lee, do we know where and why these burns-related injuries occur?
5: Elizabeth, statistics are a little bit difficult to get hold of, but a lot of incidents happen. I have seen reports from sort of the Fire Protection Association of South Africa where in Ekiruleni alone I think 11,000 incidents were reported in one year. I know they also say that the insured fire losses in this country are between 1.4 and 1.8 billion rand a year. So, yeah, it's, it's very extensive in this country. I think it's our socioeconomic conditions that create, you know, the problem in that people are living in one-room dwellings. And they're cooking and heating and eating all in one room, and that always creates an environment that's dangerous. And also in this country, unfortunately, I think alcohol abuse also plays quite a large role. In the number of incidents we have.
2: As an organization that deals with these issues daily, what are some of the things that you feel often compromise
5: fire safety? I think it's ignorance. We need to get much more public education out there. People don't think about these things. They have the attitude, I think, most times that this can't happen to me or my family. They don't take the precautions and perhaps they don't or aren't educated enough about the dangers of fire. So the National Burn Association try to ensure that our public education gets out there, that we make people aware of the dangers and that we teach them what to do in the case of either preventing fires or preventing burns and how to deal with them afterwards.
2: Educate us a bit here. What precautions can we take to keep ourselves safe from potential burns?
5: There's obvious things like you must try and avoid being close to heat sources. So we advise people to keep a one-meter radius away from a heat source, whether it's an embaler or brazier, or if it's an open flame like a candle or a heater, anything that can cause something to catch a light, try and have at least one meter distance away from it. In terms of the paraffin stoves, to learn to operate them safely, to be very aware of when you're using heating appliances like paraffin stoves or even heaters or braziers, or even cooking on little spiral electric cookers, to be very aware at all times about the environment. So, if there are children in the nearby that you, they don't pull a pot of steaming porridge or water on them, or if there's a kettle nearby that they don't pull the cord on, the, you know, the kettle that they don't bump the table and the stove falls over and creates fire, or there's a candle standing and they bump it over, or it's standing too near a curtain. There's so many things that lead to these incidents. So it's really for people to try and use their common sense and understand that a very small flame can create a very big fire.
2: And in the event that an injury has occurred, what's the best way to deal
5: with it? All right, so that's a very interesting question. The recommended first aid treatment is first of all to remove the person from the source of the burn. In other words, if they're still laying in the shack and the shack or the dwelling is alight to remove the person from the source of the burn, but without endangering themselves. There's no point in two or three people being burned. So you remove the person, and then you check that they're breathing, if they're breathing, and you try and stop any bleeding that there is, and then you cool the burn with running water, nothing else. You don't put Colgate, or you don't put vanilla essence, or you don't put butter, just cool running water, and you find the emergency services as quickly as you can, get medical assistance as quickly as you can, or get the person to medical assistance as quickly as possible, and try and keep them as clean as possible so that infection doesn't set in later on. The numbers that they must call from a landline must be 10177, and from a cell phone will be 112, and there's another number, 084124, which is ER24, which can assist them.
1: Colin Lee is the co-founder of the National Burn Association of South Africa, talking to Elizabeth Lidecha. A new report shows that long-term cooperation drives a success in the land redistribution process in South Africa. The land redistribution process remains one of South Africa's key socio-economic processes aimed at economic transformation. The research was conducted in northern KwaZulu-Natal municipal districts, indicates that the land distribution process lags far behind, unable to meet government's expectations, and in many cases, farms are unsuccessful after the transfer process. Finance and Economics Area Head at the University of South African Graduate School of Business Leadership, Professor Ntlan Tlambata led the research And he explains.
13: The background to the paper is that we started working on this around 2007, when I was still in Grant Town at Rhodes, and subsequently I worked on this at UNISA in 2012 and at the HSRC. So the first series of papers or discussions were around uh, land prices, right? That government agencies were worried that there was uh, an overinflation of prices in the land redistribution process. Can I just say that the land redistribution on its own is a program under land reform and it is separate from the land restitution program. So in redistribution it is really about acquiring land for commercial purposes for farm businesses and that's what our research is focused on. And then later on we looked at the agreements that had been signed because the data we got from 2002 to 2006 or 07 indicated that even though the market prices for the land transfers under the program were still higher than market price there was a cohort of farms where actually government got the land at much cheaper rates but in those transfers there were also agreements between the previous owners the outgoing farmers and the new incoming farmers monitored at a government level by government agencies where government got those farms at cheaper price.
2: Your research found that the state lost most of its buyers during the bargaining process. What led to this?
13: So that was in the initial discussions when we were looking at prices. Why were the prices that the state ended up paying much higher than the market prices for the land transfers at the time. We found that sometimes what would happen is that the valuation of land would take for as long as three years to complete, and it was full of red tape. By the time that the land was transferred, the initial offer three years ago was obviously much lower, the outgoing farmers would not accept that price because it's offered three years later because the valuation process was so long outdrawn. Mm. And I see that in the new act, there's a new act in 2014, the Property Valuation Act, number 17, last year. It tries to redress some of the problems that we had identified in 2008 around the valuation processes.
2: Your research also found that it's best if government agencies set up long-term agreements between the previous and new farm owners. How would this be facilitated?
13: Well, we are not proposing this. We found this in in the empirical data that we looked at. What we found, like I said earlier, is that the farms that were sold within some kind of an agreement between the state, the outgoing farmer, and the new farmer, The state paid a lower price to start off with, but there was also this agreement where skills would be transferred from outgoing farmers to new farmers. And these new farmers would be introduced to networks, business networks that would ensure that there is no productivity drops. In fact, we found a 10% increase in the level of productivity on farms that occurred within those agreement, as opposed to a 12% decline when there was no such an agreement. So the proposal actually comes from empirical evidence of what we've seen. And so the proposal was that, why don't we try and replicate this model? And it doesn't mean that, because government is paying lower, that does not mean that the outgoing farmers are not getting their due, because suddenly now they have a new contract to work with. Basically, the business is both for the incoming farmer and the outgoing farmer. And at a political level, the land is not lying idling, and productivity rates, in fact, in these cases, increased. So that was our proposal based on empirical evidence of what we looked at, of what we found.
2: Tell us about the recommendations that the research has made with regards to land redistribution.
13: We do academic research, right, and we present at academic conferences, at some of those agricultural economics conferences there would be government officials who work for land affairs and in some of the agencies that do land valuations so i can't claim credit and say that the property valuation act 17 of 2014 is directly based on our findings or is a reaction to our findings my suspicion is that a part of the problem was because government was struggling First to uh, reach its own uh, goals that they had set for 2014 The 30% transfer of land, right, to black farmers That was not reached And of the land that was transferred On average, 50% of those firms had failed in terms of remaining productive. So there's lots of factors that may have led to a relook into the valuation process itself. First, to try and make sure that the transaction costs are low and to make sure that the process itself is not as long, does not take as long, because that had negative implications for the prices that governments would then pay, which often seemed like inflated prices in the market.
1: Professor Ntlantla Ntla Mbata from the Uni- University of South Africa's Graduate School of Business Leadership on the line to Tudongo Beni. 1745, here's Rusani Matabula with your Economic News.
11: Thanks, and Good evening. The International Monetary Fund says that Sub-Saharan Africa is set for another year of solid performance despite declining commodities with a projected growth rate of 4.5% for 2015. It says while Sub-Saharan Africa remains amongst the fastest growing regions in the world, the decline in oil and other commodity prices has kept this growth projection at the lower end of the range experienced in recent years. IMF, Celine Alland
3: the dollar has been appreciating uh, quite substantially across many of the currencies in the region. It has appreciated against the euro, and a lot of countries are actually pegged to the euro, so they've seen their currency uh, depreciate against the dollar. Uh, but we've also seen other currency depreciate. Now, uh, on the positive side, it kind of mitigates the impact in domestic currency of the fall of the commodity prices. That uh, expressing local currency... Uh, For example, the price of oil has not declined as much as in dollars. That helps also mitigate the impact on the public finances uh, of those countries.
11: Mobile technology is predicted to generate a total economic value of nearly $4 trillion by the year 2020, increasing the sector's global gross domestic product contribution to over 4%. Africa's mobile revolution continues to spare innovations and fuel economies, uplifting employment spokesperson for ta telecom sarah el Khalili, explains
9: well the telecom
5: industry is booming i mean worldwide and in africa in africa is is actually learning i mean from the experiences of like europe and the us so it has much much uh, bigger potential actually than other markets i think the challenge is to make the technology cheaper and we've seen more cheaper smartphones like proliferating in the market recently, and we're going to see more of that in um, in the future, definitely. Because I mean, at the end of the day, mobile technology is not like a nice to have technology for Africans; it's a must have technology.
11: Pro- Rather private airliner, Kome, has uh, argued in the North Gauteng High Court in Pretoria that uh, South African Airways has repeatedly driven itself into serious financial difficulties because of what Kome calls SAA's undisciplined commercial behavior. The company wants the court to declare government's decision to bail out SAA with guarantees total Totaling millions of dollars, unlawful and unconstitutional. Com A argues that uh, this promotes anti-competitive behaviour in the domestic air transport industry. However, SAA Senior Counsel Jeremy Gauntlet dismisses the argument.
4: But it could be that it's got to go to Cabinet, it could be one or the other uh, safeguard, but it could not sensibly be that these two poor, two poor ministers who are sitting dealing with dire circumstances are supposed to be underwriters for all forms of policy compliance which have not inched their way into any form of exigible law yet. So we respectfully
8: submit the policy argument is without substance.
11: A top economic policy strategist says uh, the South African government is mistaken in believing that the beneficiation of mineral resources is the ultimate solution to pressing socio-economic challenges. Martin Davis of Frontier Advisory, which is a leading research company uh, focusing on emerging markets, says only the development of human resources can take a country forward and lift its millions out of uh, poverty and joblessness. I don't believe that resources confer an an, an economic
12: comparative advantage in economies. Economies succeed because of talent, entrepreneurship, wealth creation, and ultimately, people. The most important resource, and anyone, I'm sure,
1: will agree with me, everyone will agree with me on this point, the most important resource a country, a society has is its people. Develop the talent, allow the talent to thrive, and watch economic magic value creation take place.
11: South African Power Utility, ESCOM, says higher demand for power as winter approaches is among the reasons for power cuts in some parts of the country. ESCOM spokesperson Kulu The reason for
9: this implementation of load sharing, we do not have enough generating capacity at this stage because some of the generators that broke down yesterday are still not back online yet and also late in the afternoon that's when we see a lot of demand on the power consumption because of the cold weather conditions in, in parts of the country people are beginning to use uh, uh, heaters as early as five o'clock and during that time obviously that's when we see a huge demand
11: generally in terms of the power consumption and Africa's biggest bank by assets, Standard Bank, has appointed 57-year-old former ESCOM chief executive Tulani Kabasha as its new chairperson. Kabashe will take his position at the end of the month at the bank's annual general meeting, replacing outgoing chairperson Fred Paswane. Fred Numalo has more.
10: Gabashe, who has head of the state power utility ESCOM for seven years, is no stranger to Standard Bank, having been an independent non-executive director since 2003. He will also bring in a wealth of corporate experience at directorship level. At present, Gabashe is the chairman of Built Africa and MTN Zakele, a non-executive director of Toko Invest, and will retire as chairman of Imperial Holdings in November.
11: Financial indicators, the dollar at 11.98, South African rands at 9.66, Botswana Pula and 7.29, Zambian Guacha also at 0.652, the British pound and 0.89 against the euro commodities, gold $1,187, platinum $1,138 a fine ounce, Brent crude oil is at $67.27 per barrel. That's how it's looking.
1: It's 17.52 Central African time. Here's Figgy with your sports news.
10: In sports update this hour, the Confederation of African Football, KEF, and Qatar Football Association have signed a five-year cooperation agreement for the development of football between the two organizations. KEF President Issa Hayatou and QFA President Sheikh Hamad bin Khalifa bin Ahmed Al Thani signed the agreement at the KEF headquarters in Cairo in Egypt. And in rugby news, the penultimate round of the 2014-2015 HSBC Sevens World Series gets underway on Saturday in Glasgow, Scotland. With only two tournaments left in the HSBC World Sevens Series, South Africa's Blitzbok have an overall lead of a mere four points, and thus all to play for. Glasgow in, La- in London. South Africa's leads Fiji by four points and New Zealand. Feather points five adrift, Sevens winger Roscoe Spekman says it's a privilege for him to play in this tournament. It's a privilege for me to just be in a setup with the Sevens. It's a, it's an honour also, and for my first time in Glasgow. I didn't expect the weather to be this way, but it's. I must say it's very cold. But the thing is, just you mustn't forget. You must just forget about the weather and just enjoy, the the rugby. That's the thing. Meanwhile, Ruhan Nel, who scored a hat-trick against American Samoa on his debut, will also be playing in Glasgow for the first
8: time. It's my first time in Glasgow, so um, I'm, real, uh, I'm really um, privileged to be here, And um, especially for the last two legs you know, leading up to the, to the um, last tournament in England and um, everything to play for. Yeah. So I'm blessed to be here and uh, the preparation is going well, so I'm looking forward to the weekend. And in golf news, Chief Executive
10: Officer of the South African Disabled Golf, Eugene Foster, says should the powers that be in wealth decide to go ahead with a long-overdue Disabled Golf Tour, he has enough arsenal to make South Africa proud. In Canada... South America, North, South, North America and Australia, the Disabled Golf Federations have been flirting with the idea of putting a professional disabled tour that will see disabled golfers for the first time in their lives earn a living through golf just like the able bodied. I've got the boys and the golf to back it up. So um, should a tour happen, we've got half a dozen boys um, that can contend, not only just pitch up and play and uh, let's feel sorry for the boys, they will contend josh uh, is a, a canadian and, and, and u.s champion and he got beaten by two south africans so that's why i say i'm really excited about the future and about getting these guys into a
6: position to play more golf more competitive golf
10: that's your what news this hour
0: this is africa digest
1: It's 1755 Central African time. Let's recap your top stories. Protesters in Burundi's capital have burnt a man alive in ongoing riots. Mali is tense ahead of the UN, as the UN rather awaits the signing of a peace agreement and the International Monetary Fund Sub-Saharan Africa is set for further solid performance despite declining commodities and in sports the confederation of african football in and qatar football association signed a five-year cooperation agreement and that wraps up africa digest for this hour from myself's formula lezonde producer lebo muna mohulu and the rest of the team thank you for listening taking us to the top of the hour is slyla Silota with painted faces